want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to, uh, to Judges chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, I want to offer you one. We've got Bibles provided at the middle of each aisle, and um, you can flag somebody down who's sitting down there. If you don't have one, they'll pass it to you. We'd love for you to take it. It's yours. And then we'd really love to talk to you about what you read there, especially if you're not familiar with Christianity. If this is uh, this, maybe even being here this morning is a first for you, uh, we're really glad that you're here. Everything you're going to hear uh, in the next little bit together as we unpack God's Word is, is for you. It's, it's there as truth that God has put in your life this morning. We'd love to talk to you about what you're going to hear, and we'd especially love to talk to you about the Bible and, and, and for, to have you take one of those as our gift to you. The por- we're in this portion now of, a, of the book of Judges, one of the oldest books in the Bible, a book that tells the story of a, of a dark period of Israel's history, a, a period in which there's very little to love and very little reason for hope. We're at, we're at the portion of that book where we're being introduced week by week to new figures, new characters, if you will, short stories that all build towards the same picture of what life was like during this time in Israel, but, but through characters that aren't the same, characters that have their own unique perspective or their own set of circumstances that they push through and learn to believe in. Now, so far, the judges that we've considered have been what you might call the deep tracks of the Bible. We've talked about Othniel, or we've referred to him. We've talked more about Ehud, about Barak and Deborah. Probably if most of us are honest, that was the first time we'd ever talked about these figures, no matter how long we've been a Christian. Perhaps the man we're considering this morning is going to be somewhat less unfamiliar. This morning the story we come to is a story of Gideon. Chances are, if you're familiar with judges at all, this is one of the guys that you know about coming in. And with good reason. I mean, it's one of the longest stories in the book of Judges. It has more details than almost every other judge story in the book. And it's fascinating. And the details that we get about Gideon just draw you in and never let you down. This story this morning is is awesome. I think you're going to love it. It follows the same basic cycle that we've been looking at in Judges, a cycle where Israel forgets about God, they're given over by God into the hands of the neighbors that they preferred to him. They realize the effects of their choices. They cry out to God for deliverance. God raises up someone to deliver them and gives them rest. Same cycle that repeats over and over in the book. But but some stories, especially longer ones like the one with Gideon, take certain pieces to that cycle and they go deep. And when you get to one of those stories and you get to a piece in the cycle where you're getting a lot more detail in this story than you have in other stories you know you're supposed to pay attention. Because that's the author drawing us in to the, to the specific thing this time around he wants us to notice. If all the individual stories make the same big point, not all of them make the same smaller points. And in Gideon, our, our attention is drawn over and over, through detail after detail, our attention is drawn into what it is to believe in God. What it is to have faith when you'd rather have control. Gideon was a person who really liked to be in control. He's, uh, as we work our way through these details, you're probably going to laugh a little bit. And, and, and it might be because you recognize yourself there. It might be because you recognize some people that you love there. Gideon's the kind of guy who would have hated surprise parties. He's the kind of guy who would have loved to pick out all of his own Christmas presents. 
He's the kind of guy who would have wanted a complete guest list for any social event that he planned to attend, and he would have wanted to know exactly when the event would begin and when it would be over. He's a guy who at least needed to know the terms, and he much preferred to control the terms of everything that he faced in his life, at least so we can pick up in the details that we get here. He wanted control. And this desire is at the heart of how this story plays out. It's a story of God's kind and patient leadership of Gideon as Gideon learned to trust God and through that trust lead God's people. It's a story that follows and fleshes out a promise. The promise that the Lord is with you hangs over the whole story. It comes in at the beginning and it hangs over the whole story. And the story is meant to help us see how this one man comes to believe that promise. It's a promise not just for Gideon, but for each one of you. But it's a promise that you can only accept, that you can only receive and live from when you learn, as Gideon did, to give up your independence, to accept that God's deliverance comes only through radical dependence on Him. That's where we're headed this morning. We're going we're to walk that way in three steps. The first is going to set the stage for us as we see what Israel was facing when they cried out to God and when God decided in His grace to deliver them. Then we'll go deep and spend most of our time in Gideon's back and forth with God about whether or not he was going to have the strength and courage to do what God was calling him to do. A contrast between Gideon's weakness and God's patience with him. And then at the end, we'll see Gideon's faith, what it looked like when he finally was able to believe. And we'll see God's deliverance. I want to begin by reading the setup. That's going to be in verses 1 to 6 of Judges chapter 6. And I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I do that. This is is the word of the Lord from Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Israel's plight and God's kindness begins to come out in these first verses of Judges chapter 6. Before we get to Gideon, we've got to note the context from which Gideon emerges, partly because it helps to reinforce this cycle we're trying to learn. I mean, one of the main things we want to bring out of our time in Judges is more familiarity with how Judges works. 
I want you to be able to recognize the, the, the basic building blocks to each one of its stories. But not just for that reason that we want to start here with Israel's plight. It's also because the setup in this story has much more detail than the setup in the other stories we've seen so far. We're meant to look more deeply here. The author wants us to pay attention to what he's about to say. Once again, we're told at the very beginning that Israel has done what is evil. We know what that means in Judges. That means they've looked around after God has been so good to them, after he's delivered them over and over again. They start to forget about what he's done in the past, and they start to look around in the present at what their neighbors have going on, at the security that their neighbors seem to enjoy, at the the terms of their neighbors' lives that are what they wish they had in their own life. They start to look around and they start to want what their neighbors have. And so they turn to the sources of security, the sources of identity that their neighbors have looked to. They turn to their neighbors' gods. And so, as we've seen before, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, seven years might not sound so bad to you. If you were here in the first a uh, couple of sermons in this series, you know that before the, 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 the oppression that Israel was in last week and the story that we considered last week with Deborah and Barak, it was 20 years. And before that, it was 18 years. That sounds a lot worse than seven. Seven years doesn't sound so bad compared to what earlier generations of the Israelites had experienced. But, but what these seven years may lack in quantity, they make up for in quality. Israel was living in terror. Midianites and others from the east were coming in raiding parties. They were gathering themselves on Israel's borders at just about the time that Israel began to take in their crops. Now imagine yourself in an agricultural society. Your whole life depends on what you can grow. And you only get to grow things once a year. And when those things are gone, they're gone. There's no grocery store, no safety net, no fallback when your food runs out. You're at the mercy of annual cycles. And the Midianites, they know about these annual cycles. They know what time to show up. They come unannounced, but always at the right time. Just when Israel has gathered in all the stuff they've worked a year to produce for themselves. Just when they were thinking they were going to be able to stash away enough to get through the dark times in the the year to come. That's when the Midianites would come, like locusts in number and in effect. Locusts, if you've never seen a swarm of locusts, they come in clouds that can, that can block out the sun. They'll lie on the ground on crops so thick that you can't take a step without crunching on them. And they eat everything. When a locust swarm comes, nothing is left behind. And that's the way the, the Midianites and their allies were treating Israel. They would come with these raiding parties, riding camels, which was another one of the, you know, the, the, the extra steps in, in military armament in that time. If you had a camel, you had an advantage because they were fast. We think of them as these zoo animals that are cuddly and friendly and, and kind of interesting because they have humps on their back and they spit at you. But they didn't think of camels that way. These camels were, were weaponized. And Israel had no way. They had no way to survive. So many of these raiders would come in so relentless were their attacks that Israel had nothing to do but run to the hills to dig out caves strongholds hiding places where they could hunker down until those raiding hordes move on not surprisingly they cry out to the Lord they had nothing else they had nowhere else to turn And we're supposed to be asking, what's God going to do? 
Yet again, he delivered them before. Yet again, they turned back to their old ways. Yet again, they forgot and treated him as if he hadn't done anything for them. It's insulting. It's ungrateful. Why would he keep putting this misery in his life? Those are questions we're meant to ask. Will he receive them after they've abandoned him again? And at first, friends, it's not exactly clear. Because Israel has asked him for a deliverer, and he sends them, not a judge, but a prophet. Look at verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. As one author put it, it's like, it's like you're broken down on the side of the road, and you call AAA, and they send you a philosopher to talk about things. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all those who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Has he done enough at this point to show that he really is their Lord, their God for them, able to deliver? And I said to you, You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Period. Not only has he sent them a prophet instead of a judge, he sent them a prophet to remind them that they're the reason they're in this predicament. It feels almost like he's kicking them when they're down, like he's pouring salt in the wounds. But honestly, he is fully justified in doing that if this is as far as it goes. Everything he's, the prophet says here is true. Israel has gotten exactly what they've asked for. The protection and the provision of gods who are empty, powerless, who leave you to the powers that be. But these words, friends, are actually much more than true. What we can't afford to miss here in God's response to Israel's cry for help is that these words are an act of God's kindness. See, God knows that what they need far more than physical deliverance is spiritual deliverance. Deliverance from their sin. Deliverance from the unbelief that leads them down this road over and over again. Deliverance from their constant attraction to other sources of pleasure or security or belonging. They need to see why they're oppressed more than they need to be delivered immediately from their oppression. They need to be delivered from themselves more than they need to be delivered from the Midianites. By sending a prophet in reply to Israel's cry for help, even a prophet that just reminds them why they've ended up where they have, God is being kind to them. They've called out to God for deliverance, and at first blush it looks like a non-answer. But here, God is beginning to answer their prayer. He's beginning to give them what they need, even though it's not exactly what they want. And friends, before we go any further, it's important that we know. It's important that we recognize the picture of God that's coming out of this passage. That often God's kindness looks like this. Often His kindness can can 
pass for a non-answer because he hasn't answered on our terms when in reality, even through not removing what we want removed, he might be giving us exactly what we need. The prophet's words end abruptly with the announcement of Israel's disobedience. You have not obeyed my voice, period. End of speech. At this point, I think we're meant to be wondering, is this the end of the story? This prophet is a new thing in the cycle. In the past, God has heard their cry for deliverance, and the next thing you hear is that he's raised up a deliverer. This time, it's a prophet. If you're reading this for the first time, you're meant to be wondering, okay, is that the final word? Is he finally giving up on this people who's demanded so much from him with so little faith and gratitude and love in return? prophet's words end with Israel's disobedience no if, no and, no but and so nothing to prepare us for what comes next his kindness, his kindness focused first on their spiritual needs he won't let them get out from under the reality about how they got where they got but his kindness doesn't stop there his kindness reaches out to their physical needs too without any change in them Without any renovation of their hearts, without any change in their behavior, God sends his angel, a messenger that speaks for him, to Gideon, son of Joash. This comes out in verse 11. As soon as the prophet has stopped talking about Israel's disobedience, we're told that the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth that Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiez right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And here we get to the heart of the story. Now we get to Gideon. Now we get to God's kindness expanded from the truth-telling of the prophet to the deliverance of the judge. And the emphasis from here through the end of chapter 6, the strongest emphasis in this story, the thing we can't not get out of our time here this morning, is on this call of Gideon and on the back and forth between Gideon and God as he negotiates whether or not he is going to step up and be the deliverer that Israel needs. The author's trying to draw our attention here. He's trying to help us to notice Gideon's weakness, his halting, slow-rising faith, and how God relates to him in it. There's several episodes through chapter 6, but all build around this theme. I'm going to hit these episodes quick, just so you can see how the author is drawing us to his weakness and to God's patience with him in his weakness. Gideon doesn't start out as a mighty warrior. He is nobody's idea of a deliverer. Here's where the angel finds him. First, we see Gideon in his cynicism. Verse 12 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you. The promise that's going to hang over the whole story. One of the most beautiful things anyone could be told. But Gideon, Gideon is not having it. When the angel finds Gideon, he's not a freedom fighter yet. He's still a defeated subject. He's hiding in a wine press. He's beating his grain out of sight. He doesn't want to attract attention. He's just made it to that point in the year where he still thinks there's hope that he might not lose his crops this time. He's brought them in. Now he's preparing them to be used, but he doesn't want to tip off the Midianites, so he's hiding down in in, in an area that, that wouldn't be as visible, where the dust from the job that he's doing wouldn't create 
a, a, a distraction, wouldn't raise attention. And the angel speaks to him. When the angel has the audacity to tell him that the Lord is with him, Gideon's not having it and throws it back in his face. Look at what he says. Please, sir. I, I read this as kind of ironic and sarcastic. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? You with me? Verse 13. And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Faced with circumstances Gideon didn't want and Gideon didn't change, couldn't, couldn't change, he responds exactly the way we do when we love to be in control and aren't. He looks around for somebody to blame. His pain and his frustration has made him cynical. He grew up hearing stories of what God had done in the past. But what good are stories? Stories about Red Seas parted, plagues that came down, or bread from heaven, or water from rocks. What good are stories about Ehud and Eglon, or Deborah and Barak and victory? What good are stories about Jesus and his cross? What good are stories when they seem disconnected from the pain of life now? What good are stories about Egypt when I'm stuck here beating out grain in a wine press? When the angel finds Gideon, he's cynical. The angel's response is just to repeat the promise. Go, in this might of yours, save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Gideon responds in verse 15, and here we see his skepticism. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel, he says. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. My clan doesn't provide leaders, and even in my own family, I'm the least of the least. I'm not the guy you're looking for. I'm not deliverer of material. See, friends, a person who loves control isn't always confident. Sometimes our desire for control can manifest as weakness, just like Gideon's. It can, be, it can manifest itself as this debilitating and immobilizing self-doubt where you can see all the reasons that something can't work because you're not exactly sure how something can work. Again, the messenger affirms the message. Gideon's listening now. The messenger just keeps on promising that the Lord will be with him. Verse 16, and now Gideon, you see a little bit of his doubt. Verse 17, he decides he's going to put a test to this messenger. He said to him, if now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. He sort of transitioned from his cynicism into just skepticism about whether it's possible, and now just a more generic form of doubt. He's not sure yet. He's interested, he's intrigued, he's engaging, but he needs to be sure. He needs to set the terms. And so he asks for proof. I'll summarize what comes next. He asks this angel to prove his identity by a sacrifice, through a sacrifice. Gideon goes home. He prepares a sacrifice. He brings it back to this angel, and he presents it before him. The angel reaches out with a staff, and poof! The sacrifice goes up in flames, and Gideon knows now. He's blown back here. He knows now he's not dealing with just any man. This man may have looked normal, 
But this is not normal. Now, he's presented with a test of his own. After this sacrifice, the Lord, through the messenger, says to him, gives him a job to do. He says to him in verse 25, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. What's God telling him to do? Before I'll deliver you, you've got to get rid of the gods that are right here in your backyard. You've got to take down your father's altar and his and his kind of like a totem pole, a wooden pole that would have been used in worship, and we're going to burn that pole to cook a sacrifice to the one true God on top of the rubble of the altar of Baal. And what God is, is, is telling him here is that you're not going to be delivered from me while there's any chan- by me while there's any chance you'll give credit to Baal. If there's, an, if, if there's any idol stronghold in your life, then that idol can, can get credit for what I'm going to do. You've got to be exclusive in your commitment to me. Well, getting in the one who was cynical for a while, then skeptical and doubtful, he's obedient here. He rises to it. Verse 27 says he took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. He's obedient, but now we see the fear of Gideon. He's still fearful. Verse 27 says because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. He believes enough to know that this angel represents the Lord and the Lord is worth obeying. He doesn't believe enough yet to do it in the light of day. See, Gideon is still hedging his bets. Gideon is still setting his terms. He's still grasping at control. He obeys, but on his terms, terms that he's still in charge of because he can't fully let go. Now finally, the moment for action arrives. Skipping ahead to verse 33, we're told that now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Here they are again, same time of year. This year, same as the last year, they've come for what Israel has produced. But the Spirit of the Lord, verse 34 says, clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and people follow him. He goes all through the regions and one after another, these clans start rallying to him, to Gideon. This fearful man, this man who was the weakest in his father's house, much less in his clan, they come to him. Gideon should see now. It's because he's clothed in the spirit of the Lord. The Lord is with him, just as he promised. But verse 36, we see Gideon is still not convinced. Gideon has seen the army of the Midianites come. He's surely felt the power of the spirit come on him. He's responded to that by rallying troops. But now, faced with the day of battle, Gideon still wants more proof. In verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you'll save Israel by my hand, as you've said. See what he's doing? He's testing God looking for something supernatural outside the natural course of events. He wants to place a blanket outside. If the blanket's wet, 
the ground is, ground is dry, then I'll know that you're in it. And you know what? Verse, 20, verse 38 rather says, God gave him just what he asked for. It was so. When he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Soaking wet. There's no way to explain this except by God's power. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. Verse 40. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Can you see the pattern? The author's going out of his way as he sets up Gideon as a character for us to make sure that we don't miss. that Gideon was no superhero. Gideon was a whole lot like a lot of us. He was cynical. He was skeptical. He was fearful. He was doubtful. And underneath it all, he was driven by deep desire for control for his life, his future on his terms. He's essentially manipulating God all through this. And if that's clear enough about Gideon, then the other thing that's got to be clear to us, screaming at us on the pages here, is God's patience with this man. As he gives him one test after another, concocted in his head, presented to the Lord of the universe... God just lets himself be manipulated. God gives him exactly what he's asking for. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't move on from him to somebody else who'd be more strong, have more faith. Doesn't seem to resent the tests or the indignity of being untrusted. He just takes it. He just gives. Gideon has some faith here. He obeys God's word, but his faith is weak. It's a candle that's barely burning. You know what the wick looks like when it's almost ready to go out. There's just that little glint of orange and lots of smoke. That's where Gideon's faith is in this moment. And God doesn't put it out. He blows oxygen. He feeds it. He gives him what he needs to build that fire up. And that's the way God will relate to you, friends. The prophets promised that the Christ, when he came, would be one who would not extinguish a smoking flax. He wouldn't break off a bruised reed. He would be tender and kind and patient with those who were weak. That's who he is. That's how he loves. That's what we see here. It's a little sign of what we'll see more clearly in Christ who appears to his disciples when they're hunkered down in their room with doors locked, doubting that he could rise from the grave like he said that he would. When he appears to Thomas who says, I am not believing. Even though you say you saw him, I'm not believing until I see his hands and until I see his side. And what did Jesus do? He shows up. He holds out his hands as if his death and resurrection weren't enough. He holds out his hands and he lets Thomas touch him. Because he loves his people. 
He is tender with them in their weakness. And when he sees faith, even little faith, he draws near. And what we'll see next is that he uses the weak in faith to do great things by his power. He can use you. However difficult it may be for you to believe. Chapter 7 brings the story into its resolution before it goes off in another direction that we'll consider next week. In chapter 7, we see God deliver by his power. Through God's kindness and patience, the story of doubt becomes a story of faith. The story of control becomes a story of trust. The story of oppression and pain becomes a story of power and liberation. Chapter 7 opens with Gideon leading his men into battle positions. They come early and encamp beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. What we're told later in verse 12 of chapter 7 is that they lay out in their camps with all their people and all their camels like sand on the seashore, like locusts scattered over the crops. So many of them we can't even count them. How many were there? I don't know, but, but there were too many. Too many for Israel to defeat them, that's for sure. That's what's so interesting about what God says to Gideon in verse 2 of chapter 7. Faced with this innumerable innumerable army, the Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. The people with you are too many for me to give you this victory. It's meant to be shocking, given the size of Midian's army. And verse 2 gives us the reasoning. No boasting. Not once this victory is done. It's got to be obvious that God is the one who delivers by his power, on his terms, by his grace alone. So he trims down those who were afraid first. With this trimming down, their numbers drop from 32,000, which is a sizable army, not enough for one that's numbered like the sand on the seashore, but a sizable army. Through this first test, it's trimmed down from 32,000 to 10,000. That's all that's left. 10,000 against the sand on the seashore. Ridiculous odds. Still too many. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water. And I'll test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as the dog laps, you'll sit by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. What's going on here? And in case it's not obvious, he is not trying to give us some tips on how to build a winning army. You might be able to spin the the sending home of the fearful that way. 
You can't build a winning army around people who aren't all in. You've got to get rid of those who are afraid. That would, have, that would have cost them Gideon. That's not the point. And if there's any doubt about what God is trying to do here, the second test clears that all away. You don't apply this text by saying, if, if you want to build an unstoppable force, then you want to make sure that you build it around lappers. What you've really got to do is get yourself a good core of lappers. You get the, you get the imagery, right? It's, they come down to the creek, and it's, it's the lappers of the men who take water up in their hands, bring it to their mouths, and, and drink it like a dog would out of a dog bowl. The others get down on their face and kind of put their face in the water and just drink it in, which is more efficient maybe, but... I don't know. We don't want to read into it, all right? The point is, it's completely arbitrary. It makes no sense why you would want one and not the other in your army. And that's what God is, is doing here on purpose. What God is doing is asking Gideon to give up control. He's asking Gideon to trust him on his terms, even when the terms don't make sense. So that when he delivers, Gideon's going to know who was responsible. He wants to kill Gideon's desire for control. He wants to teach Gideon and Israel to trust him. If it made sense why he trimmed the army down in this way, it would seem repeatable. It would turn God into something we could control if we learned the system. What we've got to do is figure God out. Then we input the things that he's looking for, and we can get the outputs that we're looking for. He's a robot that way. God is independent. He is free. He acts on his terms and his terms only. He is not a code to be broken. He is a person to be loved and trusted. And he's going to show that to Gideon in this story. Now, in these most extreme circumstances with no rhyme or reason to explain the terms, Gideon Finally, trust him. Gideon is now left with 300 against hordes, but he's confident. The people took provisions in their hands, verse 8 says, and their trumpets, and sent all the rest of Israel to his tent, but retained the 300. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Skipping ahead, after one more episode where the Lord gives him more proof of his goodness, of what he's going to do, Gideon effects the battle plan. It's a battle plan that's also random and also meant to show that God is the one who provides the deliverance. What he does is he sends his 300 men into three separate places around the camp of Midian in the dark of night. They don't even take their weapons. He gives them trumpets, he gives them torches, and he puts clay jars over their torches. That's how 300 men go up against the locusts. Stationed around them, they wait for his word. Gideon gives them the word. They blow their trumpets. They smash their jars on the ground. They hold their torches up in the air. And now imagine you're one of the Midianites. Imagine you're in a deep sleep in the middle of the night. Imagine what you hear waking you up from that sleep is a trumpet blast and men shouting and things crashing and lights all around you in the pitch darkness of those ancient electricityless times. Imagine that's what you see. How do you think you would respond? Probably what you would do is grab your sword, run as fast as you can, and swing it as hard as you can at anything that moves. 
This is psychological warfare at its best. That's exactly what they do. The army fled. As they fled, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army without so much as a sword's blow from Gideon and his men. The Lord destroys completely the threat against his people. The army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, from Asher, from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. It's a heck of a story, isn't it? It's interesting, it's unexpected, it's beautiful even. And it's also, friends, profoundly relevant. I hope by now I don't have to say much to say why. On the one hand, it's meant to show us we can't come to God and maintain our independence. Not any shred of it. We tend to trust him only if we know what he's going to do. That's our tendency, isn't it? If I know what he will bring to me, then I'll trust him. Friends, that's how we hold on to some measure of control. My trust in him is my way of securing the result that I want. I'm still setting the terms. But we're told to trust him not based on what he's going to do, which we may not know or be able to predict, but to trust him based on what he's done already, not just in the Exodus, but on the cross of Christ, who poured out his blood for sinners like us who don't deserve it. We're told to trust him based on what he's already done and to trust him with whatever he's going to do. We're told through this story to attach our trust to him. That attachment to him is going to bump up against your desire for independence over and over again. You won't always know why he's let so much pain in your life. You won't always understand why he's told you to do things that you don't want to do or things, or he's told you not to do things that seem so natural to you, so good to do. You won't always understand how he can forgive you or be for you despite what you've done. You won't always understand him. He is free. He is not controlled by your inputs. But you have the same promise that Gideon received, only you've got it with a far more clear, far more powerful down payment than he could have even ever imagined. The Lord, the uncontrollable one, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord is with you. Emmanuel, God with us, in the person of Jesus, who came, who lived, who died, and who now lives again to intercede for you so that you have everything you need. He won't give you control. 
but he'll give you himself. And he has, if you'll take it. Father, help us to take it, not just once, not just this morning, but every day, all day, through the twists and turns of a life that isn't what any of us would choose. None of us get to live life completely on our terms. All of us are faced with realities that are bigger than us and harder than we'd like them to be. And and all of us are going to be faced with opportunities not to believe you. So help us to trust you by your spirit. Break us if you have to. But don't give up on us, Father. Please don't break off the reeds that are bruised, the candles that are barely smoking. Be with us and for us, we pray. In Jesus, amen.